second of Macedon and sister of Alexander the Great. This city became the capital of Macedonia around 168 BC and enjoyed the status of a free city which was ruled by its own citizens under the Roman Empire. Because it was located on the main east-west highway called Via Ignatia, Thessalonica served as the hub of political and commercial activity in Macedonia and became known as the mother of all Macedonia. The population in Paul's day was around 200,000 people. The Apostle Paul first visited Thessalonica during his second missionary journey along with Silas and Timothy. This journey occurred around 50 AD and you can read all about it in Acts 17. They had just been released from prison in Philippi and made their way uh, south, southward, yes, south to, to Thessalonica. Paul sought out the synagogue, and for at least three Sabbath days, he reasoned in the synagogue with those present, and many people believed the gospel. Those who responded to the message of Christ um, were Jews and God-fearing Greek proselytes to Judaism. There were also some leading women of the city and many idol-worshiping pagans who came to faith. They did such a good job of evangelizing that the unbelieving Jews had Paul's team evicted from the city. And so they went south to evangelize Berea. Paul had a similar experience there. I am falling apart here. One thing I have that's small is ears. Okay. <laughs> so they went south to evangelize Berea. He had a similar experience there. So the believers sent Paul away for his safety. He headed to Athens while Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. They later joined Paul in Athens. But Paul soon sent Silas back to Philippi. And he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. Paul journeyed alone to Corinth. It was after Timothy and Silas rejoined Paul in Corinth that he wrote 1 Thessalonians in response to Timothy's good report of the church. This first of Paul's two letters written from Corinth to the church at Thessalonica is dated around 51 AD. This is Paul's second inspired letter following his letter to the Galatians. Paul carried an overwhelming burden of responsibility and care for all of the churches. It must have been refreshing for him to minister to, minister to the Thessalonian Christians whom he thought worthy of commendation and encouragement. He began the letter with recognition of their Christian virtues. He arranges these virtues under two categories. First, the Thessalonians' present condition... He says, your faithful work, your loving deeds, and your continual anticipation of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And second, their past conversion, your reception of the gospel in power and the Holy Spirit, your genuine imitation of the Lord, your joyful endurance in tribulation, you yourselves becoming an example to all the Christians in Greece, a proclamation of the word everywhere, everywhere 
You turned away from idols to serve the true and living God. And you are looking forward to the coming of God's son from heaven. Ladies, these are characteristics of a redeemed people. Paul continues by showing that the servant of God preaches the true message God has laid out in his word. And he does so for the sake of truth, not for personal popularity. And when opposition comes, he trusts in the power of God and stays obedient to his calling. All that was true of Paul and his companions. As with all dedicated preachers of the gospel, they counted the cost of faithfully confronting sinners with the truth and rested boldly in the sovereign power of God. Paul knew he could be confident in God's power because he was committed to God's truth, not only in his preaching, but also in his personal life. Enemies often try to destroy ministers of the gospel by persecution. And when that doesn't work, as it didn't with Paul, they try to undermine people's trust in the spiritual leader's message or his personal integrity. Paul's words reveal his concerns as a pastor. Through his inspired pen comes some of the pastoral attitudes Paul had for the church. He was encouraged by what he heard about them, and he loved them and longed to be with them. His forced separation from the Thessalonians seemed to intensify his pastoral concern for them. He speaks of his affection for his people, sacrifice for them, compassion for them, protectiveness toward them, delight in seeing them, gratitude for them, and intercession for them. From chapter 4 through the end of the letter, Paul's primary purpose was to exhort the church to strive for spiritual excellence. He reminded them that they must be committed to sexual purity. Though the surrounding culture continually lowered its moral standards, they could not lower theirs. Finally, Paul reminded his persevering church about their everyday responsibilities to live a quiet life, to mind their own business, and to work with their hands. These exhortations are as applicable to us today as they were for the Thessalonian believers. As history continues to unfold, the eternally planned purposes of God, one event looms large on the horizon, the day of the Lord. That event will mark the end of man's day as God acts in judgment and takes to take back direct control of the earth from the human and demonic usurpers who presently rule it. It will be an unprecedented time of cataclysmic judgment on all unrepentant sinners. In his closing challenge, Paul focused on the sinful obstacles to the Thessalonian church's spiritual growth. He identified five sinful struggles that need to be dealt with. Warn those who are unruly or lazy, encourage those who are timid or faint-hearted, take tender, tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone, and see that no one pays back evil for evil. Well, effective communication is difficult, isn't it? Often the message sent is not the message received. Even when clearly stated or written, Words can be misinterpreted and misunderstood. 
Paul faced this problem with the Thessalonians. He had written earlier to help them grow in their faith, comforting them by affirming the reality of Christ's return. Just a few months later, however, word came from Thessalonica that some had misunderstood Paul's teaching about the second coming. His announcement that Christ could come at any moment had caused some to stop working and just wait, rationalizing their idleness by pointing to Paul's teaching. Adding fuel to this fire was the continued persecution of the church. Many felt that indeed this must be the day of the Lord. Responding quickly, Paul sent a second letter, most likely in late 51 AD or early 52 AD, to this young church, giving further instruction concerning the second coming and the day of the Lord. Second Thessalonians, therefore, continues the subject of First Thessalonians and is a call to continued courage and consistent conduct. The church had matured, yet seeds of false doctrine concerning the Lord had been sown, and the people were behaving in a disorderly manner. Paul wrote to his flock who were discouraged by persecution and needed incentive to persevere. Deceived by false teachers who confused them about the Lord's return and disobedient to divine commands, particularly by refusing to work. He wrote to address those issues by offering comfort for the persecuted believers, correction for the falsely taught and frightened believers, and confrontation for the disobedient and undisciplined believers. Although these issues were serious, they didn't keep Paul from being immensely thankful for the strong spiritual character of the church. In the face of increasing opposition, the Thessalonian believers demonstrated their genuine conversion, an ever-increasing faith, a growing love, an unwavering hope, and a kingdom-focused attitude. Paul goes on to delineate the events that will occur before the day of the, of the Lord. He wrote this section to deal with the Thessalonians' loss of hope and joy through confusion about the end times. They were also directly assaulted by the deception of some false teachers. Recognizing the efforts of the false teachers, Paul added more strong evidence to prove that they are not in the day of the Lord since the Antichrist hasn't appeared yet. The lawless one points to a man consumed with rebellion. The Antichrist will both oppose the true Christ and seek to usurp his place. He stands in direct defiance to Jesus Christ. He will perform mighty acts, pointing to himself as supernaturally empowered. His whole operation will be deceptive, luring the world to worship him and be damned. Yet in the end, this man will be conquered by the sovereign ruler of the universe. A correct hope in the Lord's return produces joy. Those who know the Lord will not experience the terrible judgment of the, of the day of the Lord because their salvation is secure. They look forward to that wonderful event when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Titus 2.13 This brief letter has been filled with high drama. God's justice on those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ and their eternal destruction in hell 
God's judgment of the sinful world in the day of the Lord, the coming of the final Antichrist and his ultimate destruction at the return of Jesus Christ, warning of deceiving wolves in sheep's clothing and rebuking lazy Christians. Up to this point, it has been a tempestuous letter, but Paul's concluding passage is like the calm sea after a violent storm. Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for his effective ministry and for protection from his enemies. He instructed them about God's faithfulness and taught them on the practical issue of work. Then he closes with a prayerful benediction to God. Many first century followers of Christ were suffering and being abused and persecuted for believing in and obeying Jesus. Beginning in Jerusalem at the hands of their Jewish brothers, the persecution spread to the rest of the world, wherever Christians gathered. It climaxed when Rome determined to rid the empire of the Christ ones, those who would not bow to Caesar. First Peter has always been identified with the name of the author, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, and with the notation that it was his first inspired letter. The opening verse of the epistle claims it was written by Peter, who was clearly the leader among Christ's apostles. The gospel writers emphasize this fact by placing his name at the head of each list of apostles and including more information about him in the four gospels than any other person other than Christ. Originally known as Simon in Greek or Simeon in Hebrew, Peter was the son of Jonas, who was also known as John, and a member of a family of fishermen who lived in Bethsaida and later in Capernaum. Andrew, Peter's brother, brought him to Christ. Peter was married, and apparently his wife accompanied him in his ministry. Christ renamed him Peter in Greek, or Cephas in Aramaic, both meaning stone or rock. The Lord clearly signaled Peter out for special lessons throughout the Gospels. He was the spokesman for the Twelve, articulating their thoughts and questions as well as his own. Peter's triumphs and weaknesses are chronicled in the Gospels and in Acts chapters 1 through 12. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Peter initiated the plan for choosing a replacement for Judas. After the coming of the Holy Spirit, he was empowered to become the leading gospel teacher from the day of Pentecost on. Peter also performed notable miracles in the early days of the church, and he opened the door of the gospel to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. According to tradition, Peter had to watch as his wife was crucified, but he encouraged her with the words, remember the Lord. When it came time for him to be crucified, Peter reportedly pled that he was not worthy to be crucified like his Lord, but rather should be crucified upside down, which tradition says he was, circa 67 to 68 AD. First Peter was most likely written just before or shortly after July 64 AD, when the city of Rome burned, thus having a writing date of about 64 to 65 AD. When the city of Rome burned, the Romans believed that their emperor, Nero, had set the city on fire. 
Nero had an incredible lust to build. And in order to do so, he had to destroy what already existed. The Romans were totally devastated. Their culture had gone down with the city. All the religious elements of their life had been destroyed. Their great temples, shrines, and even their household idols. This had great religious implications because it made them believe, rightfully so, that not only had their deities not been able to deal with this destructive fire, but they also had been victims of it. The people were homeless and helpless. Many had been killed. Their bitter resentment was so severe that Nero realized that he had to redirect their hostility. The emperor's chosen scapegoat was the Christian community. Christians were already hated because they were associated with Jews and because they were seen as being hostile to the Roman culture. Nero quickly spread the word that the Christians had set the fires. As a result, a vicious persecution against Christians began and soon spread throughout the Roman Empire, impacting the Christians Peter called pilgrims. These pilgrims, who were probably Gentiles for the most part, possibly had been led to Christ by Paul and his associates. They needed spiritual strengthening because of their sufferings. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this epistle to strengthen them. Peter knew persecution firsthand. Beaten and jailed, Peter had been threatened often. He had seen fellow Christians die and the church scattered. But he knew Christ, and nothing could shake his confidence in his risen Lord. So Peter wrote to the church, scattered and suffering for the faith, giving comfort and hope and urging continued loyalty to Christ. In the first segment of his letter, chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10, Peter points out three characteristics of the faith. First, believers have a precious salvation, one which gives them hope, Joy was witnessed by the Old Testament prophets and even desired by angels. Second, believers have been given a new way of life, one which requires holiness, reverence towards their heavenly father, and genuine love toward their brothers and sisters in the faith. Finally, believers are a chosen priesthood whose identity requires that they crave the word and come to Christ in worship by offering a spiritual sacrifice, which is acceptable to God. This new identity is based on the precious stone which the builders rejected. Believers are a chosen people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. They are to show others the goodness of God because he called them out of the darkness into his wonderful light. In the second segment of the letter, the, the, the apostle articulates how God's people should behave. Chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 11, addresses the believer's responsibilities in relation to the world. And chapter 4, verse 12, through chapter 5, verse 11, addresses the believer's responsibilities in relation to each other. Peter highlights what for him seems to be the key to the Christian life, respect. This attitude is for every Christian. First, all Christians should respect everyone, especially those in authority. But it shouldn't be done in a cowering way, but rather as a free people. 
those who choose to show respect instead of being forced to do so. Second, servants must submit to their masters, whether the masters are good or evil. We are to follow Christ's example, whose suffering brought, the, brought believers salvation. Third, wives must submit to their husbands, even unbelieving husbands, with a gentle and quiet spirit, following the example of Old Testament saints such as Sarah, Abraham's wife. Fourth, husbands must honor their wives so that their prayers may be answered. Peter encourages actively doing good. It's one thing to suffer for simply being a Christian. It's quite another to suffer for living like a Christian before a watching world. Peter admonishes believers to do good, even if they should suffer. He again applies the sufferings of Christ as our example and our benefit. We should follow his example by avoiding our former lifestyle and by looking forward to our heavenly hope. Peter also admonishes his audience to band together in order to better face their sufferings. We should live expectantly because Christ is coming soon. Getting ready to meet Christ involves continually growing in love for God and for others. It's important to pray regularly with a clear mind, to love with deep affection, to reach out to those in need, to show hospitality without grumbling, and to exercise our spiritual gifts with faithfulness. In the third and final major segment of the letter, Peter addresses the leaders of the struggling church. Times of suffering and persecution call for excellent leadership. Those who shepherd God's flock have unique responsibilities that should never be taken lightly. In the New Testament, the words bishop, elder, overseer, and pastor are used inter interchangeably to describe those men responsible to lead, preach and teach, help the spiritually weak, care for the church, and ordain other leaders. The word emphasizes spiritual maturity, and the plural indicates the need for a plurality of leaders to oversee and shepherd God's flock. Peter addresses the leaders of the church especially because it makes sense that the leaders would be targeted for special persecution. He urges the church to get on with its business in spite of the trials. As Christians, we should expect persecution and not be surprised by it. A pure, powerful church will inevitably provoke a hostile reaction from the satanic world system. Christians and churches will make waves, and the world and Satan will retaliate with persecution. God has always used suffering to perfect and purify his people and to demonstrate the sufficiency of his grace. He speaks to the elders first, urging them to be faithful shepherds, then he addresses the rest of the congregation, urging them to show respect to the elders. The true measure of a servant of God is whether he focuses solely on pleasing God, which gives him the willingness to serve with humility and suffer opposition from those hostile to the truth. He sums up the attitude all believers should have. Humble yourselves and cast your cares on God. 
he concludes with a further reason why believers need to depend on God. There is a supernatural enemy who seeks to devour Christians. But as much as this enemy should motivate us to depend on God, he should not cause us undue fear, for our God is greater than he is. Afraid for his life, Peter had three times denied even knowing Jesus. But in this letter, having learned how to stand firm in an evil world, he encouraged other Christians who were facing persecution for their faith. May this be an encouragement to us as well as we live our lives for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be followers of your word. As we begin our second semester of Bible study, Lord, I just pray that we would be diligent in the study of your precious word, that it wouldn't just be another task we have to accomplish, but that we would hold your truths in our hearts, that we would actively pursue the truths exposed in your word and apply them to our lives so that we would follow your word and the truths contained in it to affect the way we live and think and act for your glory and honor. Amen.